Hi everyone and welcome to Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist podcast. My name's Amelia, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Anime Feminist and I'm joined today by Peter Phobian, Valerie Complex and Brian Rue. If you guys would like to introduce yourselves. I'm Peter Phobian, I'm an Associate Feature Editor at Crunchyroll and a Contributor Editor at Anime Feminist. Hi, my name is uh, Valerie Complex and I do a lot of writing about anime and movies and film. Uh, I have a Rotten Tomatoes page. Or you can check me out on Twitter at Valerie Complex. Hi, I'm Brian Rue. I've, I do some writing about uh, Japanese animation and film. I wrote the book Stray Dog of Anime, the films of Mamoru Oshii, you know, who directed the first Ghost in the Shell film. So I think that's probably why I'm here and why we're going <laughs> to be talking about this. Has some qualifications. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're really happy to have both of you on. You're actually our first guests on Chatty AF. We've never had guests before, so this is quite exciting. And today we're talking about Ghost in the Shell. Not a big surprise there. Um, there will be spoilers for the entire franchise, but we're only going to be talking about the manga and anime versions. That is the films and TV series, but not the Hollywood remake. So we're recording this actually before the remake's been released in our respective countries. So we will not be covering that at all today. But we are talking about the manga, the anime, the uh, 1995 film, obviously. Um, so I'd like to ask everyone first what your experience is with Ghost in the Shell. So how and when did you first encounter it and what has your relationship with it been over the years? So we'll start with Valerie. It was one of the first animes that I watched. I was introduced to anime as a kid. I was around 10 years old and somebody was like, here, watch La Blue Girl and Akira and Ghost in the Shell. And I was like, what is all of this stuff? And um, that was like really my first experience with like a strong female sort of protagonist in anime. Parts of it also scared me. I don't think till recently I actually understood what I was watching until I watched Standalone Complex and some other things. But that's pretty much my general experience with the with the movie and the series. Great. And Peter? Um, I think uh, Ghost in the Shell was probably the fourth or fifth anime I ever watched. I know the number one was Akira, and uh, I saw Ava and Kawibop, and I, I don't know if it came before or after Trigun, but it was kind of like that. I was a huge sci-fi um, fan back in, well, I still am, but uh, that was like my main reason for getting into anime, my first introduction. It was sort of like my, my first impression of anime and what really got me into it, because they had all these really creative ways of exploring the same ideas that a lot of uh, sci-fi authors in the West have. Great. I'm Brian. So I started getting into anime. Well, I mean, my original experience with anime was, yeah, when I was growing up and watching things on TV, like, because I grew up in the 80s. So it's, you know, lots of sci-fi stuff on TV, like, you know, Voltron and Robotech and you know, star blazers, that kind of stuff. So that's that's what I kind of grew up with. And then in the 90s, I started kind of getting back into into anime again. I, the first one that really kind of got me back into anime was what uh, was when I was watching Bubblegum Crisis in in the early 90s. And so that was, you know, very kind of, you know, cyberpunk science fiction. That's that's what I was really interested in and in, into. And so it was uh, kind of a, just a seemingly logical progression from there to you know, watching stuff like Ghost in the Shell, which 
I don't remember when I first saw it. It probably would have been you know, 96 or 97 uh, when I would have rented a videotape of it. And I thought it was, you know, okay at first, but it wasn't until, yeah, I couldn't, I didn't really, I think, appreciate it on first viewing. But then when I went back and rewatched it, and especially in a subtitled version, I was, I, I could really get more out of it. And so that's where I started in watching. So I, watching that film and then kind of keeping up with Ghost in the Shell as it's progressed you know, through the through the TV series and through the second film and and so on. So did you both start with the movie or, or Standalone Complex? I saw the movie way before Standalone Complex came out. So I was familiar with the with the material. And I had read I had read the mangas, you know, when I was first discovering what mangas were, I had read the follow-ups. So I was familiar with it before Standalone Complex, although I find Standalone Complex to be better. I don't know, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, same here, I, I watched the film before Standalone Complex and, and that kind of stuff came out. I don't remember when I first started reading the manga. It was probably, um, it was probably after I saw the film. So, I mean, I think that the, the 95 film was probably my first introduction to just kind of the greater world of Ghost in the Shell. Probably a good thing, because those mangas are, well, they eventually get better, but the first one is like weird, and it's <laughs> like, you know, kind of fan service-y, cheesecake-y. It's a really uh, dramatic departure. I like almost couldn't believe it was the same thing. Yeah. I know, it's really um, weird, and then it has some explicit content, and it was just like, because I had seen Dominion Tank Police, and I know that that's mm -hmm. also by Shiro. It was such a different thing. Um, so it's probably good that you saw the movie first. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and talking about Shiro's work, yeah, I mean, before I watched Ghost in the Shell, I was, I, I was also familiar with Appleseed a little bit too, which was the manga and there was a, an animation of it too that came out before that. And I, was, I watched the Appleseed the, the first Appleseed anime uh, quite a bit actually in high school before I watched Ghost in the Shell. So yeah, I mean, I was kind of, and that kind of goes along with the whole kind of techno cyberpunky stuff that I was into at the time. They're all in the same. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if they all existed in a, some sort of quasi-universe. I think uh, <laughs> the two main characters from Appleseed show up in the background in the, the first volume of Ghost in the Shell, don't they? I was gonna say yes. There, there is. It's just like yeah, in kind of in the background in a crowd scene. There, I think they're sitting on some steps. But yeah, you you do see them. Yeah. In there. Which could have been fan service, or it could have just been like yeah. It, it, I don't know if it, they were using implying that it's the same universe or not. But I know there is a big debate among uh, Shiro fans as to whether his ultimate work is Appleseed or Ghost in the Shell. So. Did any of you see the remake of Appleseed? No. I didn't. No. Yeah, the remake is. I like the remake. A lot of people don't, but the. Which, I know there there have been some. I've seen a couple of the like the theatrical ones, but I haven't actually gotten to the. Was there like a TV show with some episodes? I don't know, but I know. Okay. As far as a TV show with some episodes, I don't think so. I just think that it's 
a three-part movie series. Okay. Because um, I have the first film, and it's like almost two hours, and then there's a, there's a second movie, and then there's a third one. Um, neither of them are good, but the first one <laughs> is the first one is is worth it. Um, but as far as like Cheryl's ultimate work, that's a really a good question. I still like Dominion Tank Police, but whatever. I mean, I'm always weird <laughs> and on the outside of things. Well, I want to ask about the manga actually, since we're discussing it. Um, did you see the manga? Oh, sorry. Did you read the manga of Ghost in the Shell before or after Standalone Complex? Oh, gosh. I can't even remember. It was way before Standalone Complex. Because actually, you know, I just actually watched Standalone Complex like four years ago. So it was like way before. Yeah. But you were already a Ghost in the Shell fan at that point. Yes. Yes. Okay. And how did you respond to the manga then? Um, I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is so, I, I don't know, it just reminded me of like some cyberpunk version of Sailor Moon. And it was weird. The illustration was weird. I can't really describe it. I don't have a word for it. Brian, how about you? Did you read the manga like after after identifying as a Ghost in the Shell fan or was that part of becoming a fan? I think it was I think it was part of becoming a fan. Mm-hmm. And I do think that you know reading the manga helped me understand the film a bit more because that was one of the things so yeah when I was kind of the difference in the ending between the film and the manga that you know when Kusanagi the, like the new body that Kusanagi gets put into you know in the film is that of uh, a young girl whereas at the end of the manga the body that she gets put into is that of an effeminate man that Bateau initially mistakes for being a woman which you know there might be a lot it seems like there's kind of a lot to unpack there but but so one of the reasons why yeah why I pursued the manga and wanted to read it was because I was interested in the film and I wanted to find out a little bit more about it, kind of figure out where it came from and you know, maybe give it a little bit more context. Okay, because Ghost in the Shell is a franchise where you have the same characters but they're represented differently depending on which version you're watching and they tell slightly different stories depending on which version you're watching, right? But in, in each time, they have different art styles, they have different personalities, sometimes they have different motivations. So looking at Motoko, I mean, my personal experience with, with Ghost in the Shell is, I, I mean, I'm not a, really a fan. I saw the 1995 film back in the 90s, I think probably on the Sci-Fi Channel in the UK, starting at midnight, something like that. <laughs> um, it was Anime was actually niche back then. So it was, um, yeah, something I watched and I felt kind of an obligation to. And the older I've got and the more I've kind of identified as anime fan, the more I felt like I have this obligation to give Ghost in the Shell the respect it deserves. But I don't really enjoy the sci-fi. I don't really enjoy the philosophical content. Um, and it's hard for me to engage with it. However, at the same time, I absolutely appreciate the cultural place that it exists in and the fact that it is fronted by this physically strong and professional female character 
I think is just incredible that it's achieved the level of popularity that it has. And for as long as it has, the longevity of this series is really impressive. I, I would say that the franchise is like loosely connected. Because if you read some of the material, you know, it, it says, that, you know, there are different people who say everything is connected and it's all in the same universe. And that it actually sort of runs chronologically, if you look at it, with Arise, um, Ghost in the Shell Arise being a prequel, and then ending right where the 1995 movie starts, and then standalone complex, solid state society, and then that's it. Um, but like you said, everybody, the motivation is different, the missions are different, everything is different, so I don't know if it can be called an official sort of franchise because everything can be connected and sort of stand alone. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what I wanted to ask you guys, um, which is your favorite version of Motoko and why? In all of the franchise of Ghost in the Shell, in, in every one of its versions, which one do you feel most connected to, like you most appreciate? So I'm gonna start with Brian. I'd probably have to say that my favorite version of her is from the from the second season of the TV show. So from from second gig. So that that stretch of twenty six episodes. Because I think it it's really it, it goes into a lot more into kind of her background and you know her her relationships with kind of the people around her and it brings up some really interesting ideas about you know the nature of you know the body as you are kind of growing up because in that in second gig we see we see her as, as as a young girl who I'm trying. I she's in some sort of disaster. I think a plane crash of some sort, and and she gets this kind of experimental surgery, and that's how she's put into this uh, to this cyborg body, and then you know, it, it kind of deals with her you know, a little bit growing up and adjusting to this body, uh, which is. I think a really interesting thing to think about, you know, from especially from kind of a, a science fiction kind of ex- extrapolating idea of, you know, things that people might honestly have to deal with, you know, think through and deal with philosophically in the future, you know, that, that we might have to, you know, deal with you know young people who have you know who are kept alive through you know you know cybernetic implants and things like that and how we deal with that you know as they grow up and their conceptions of themselves and their bodies so i think that that you know in that way i think that that makes second gig one of the most interesting uh treatments of her uh in in the franchise i mean but of course you know i have my original love is for the is for the 1995 film so i mean i always kind of go back to that but i think second gig just kind of edges it out a little bit for me and peter how about you 
I'd probably have to say the television series. Uh, the film, I think, really kind of was like an isolation of the human essentialist themes in uh, that like are in all of the Ghost in the Shell adaptations. So it was very... Uh, uh, they, they were sort of like going for this Kusanagi who was very like, I don't know, uh, questioning her own humanity very often, which in I mean... In the film, it, you mean? Yeah, in the 1995 film. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was... Uh, I mean, that was fascinating, but I didn't... It, it makes it hard to connect with the character because the character is like in the process of uh, questioning her own humanity. She's kind of like doing a... Pulling a Dr. Manhattan in the movie where she's not... You, you wonder whether or not she is still a human. Uh, then in the manga, uh, she kind of gets goofy a lot, actually. There's a lot of jokes in the manga. Yeah, she does, doesn't she? Yeah, like uh, where she says she's going to have to direct directly connect to one of their advisors' brains to give him some information about a case, and instead she just makes him punch himself in the face. The I, I like police procedurals as well, right? Um, but So I think like the, the anime kind of prolonged her as... Um, just a member of Section 9. And also, I think I also enjoy her position as sort of like the the leader of Section 9, uh, the one mm-hmm. that, like, all the other, um, I don't know if they call them agents, I guess, kind of respect, look up to, and, and follow. I guess that's the the experience that I uh, with the character that I most enjoyed. Second Gig does some interesting stuff, too. My first impression was I watched Standalone before Second Gig, so I'd probably say Standalone, but I don't know if I could... I'm not sure which one I would really say if I had, like, freshly watched both series. I'm going to go with standalone. Um, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to make a choice. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, Valerie, how about you? I, I think I like her progression through standalone complex. Um, I just think her look is a little bit more visually pleasing. The animation is really great by um, Project Pro- Production IG. They did a really good job with creating the sort of world. Um, and I just like her look um, and how she sort of matures from the first to the second gig. And I really like this, the themes, the sort of relevant themes that are in both um, seasons of Standalone Complex, with the first one dealing with, you know, the medical companies and the micro machines, and then the second one dealing with refugees and, and, and things that are sort of relevant right now and that's why I think standalone complex will always have a a special place uh in my heart even though I think the the uniqueness of Ghost in the Shell Innocence which nobody brought up yet it I think it it, you know it sits in the back of my mind as something that's very interesting and dealing with children and childlike cyber bodies and stuff like that so I'd say you know Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and then Innocence yeah that the movies were very kind of like philosophical, high-minded science fiction, whereas the TV series sort of covered more societal discussions. So I think those are probably an, an easier point or something. It's like easier to see the themes in real life with. Right. And the, the thing about Innocence is that it's really not for everybody. I don't think it's for the average anime fan either, because I was sitting there watching and I actually went to movie theaters to see it. All the philosophical philosophical mumbo jumbo made me want to jump out of a window I, was like, I can't <laughs> understand this yeah it had a lot nope it's like nobody talks like that where all of them it's like the only reason you're able to quote that many philosophers is because you have like external memory hooked up to your brain <laughs> they're like quoting like buddha and plato and just like in, in casual conversations to try to like I, I don't even know what points they're trying to make a lot of the time uh but uh it's i it's kind of hard to engage with a conversation like that yeah, it's really weird the the direction they went. I think Innocence is kind of a contentious point amongst the fan base because it was really 
uh, even visually and like the the part of the story they cover it's just it's uh very not like the rest of ghost in the shell except maybe the manga what do you think of innocence brian i haven't really brought up innocence yet just because there is it is so dense there's just i think that there's a lot to talk about it's interesting you know talking thinking about kusanagi in the context of innocence because she doesn't really you know you don't really see her that much only at the i mean she she's kind of omnipresent throughout but you don't really know that kind of until the very end when she shows up sort of in this kind of you know possessed you know in a in a in a separate body that she is kind of possessed and so you know she's kind of i mean she is kind of like this ghost that's kind of lurking throughout but yeah i mean there's a lot there's you know like you're saying i mean there's there's so many quotations and and different things and and different literary allusions that's going on in there that a few years ago when i was revising my book uh to include chapters, to include a chapter on, on innocence in it, you know, I, I really had to limit myself to the, to what I was covering in that chapter, because, I mean, I could, there was just so much to, to, to talk about and to write about that I just, I could have kept going on and on in there, and it was just so much to, you know, like I said, there's just so much to unpack and to talk about. And to, you know, try to figure out, you know, what are, what, if anything, are they trying to say with all these different, you know, quotes and literary allusions and things like that. So, I mean, I, of, you know, all of the, you know, Ghost in the Shell franchise, I mean, Innocence is, is kind of, you know, might be my favorite in that way. Um, but, you know, if we're, but if we're talking about, you know, representing, you know, talking about Motoko and, and mm-hmm. how she kind of interacts with things. You know, I think that, that then innocence falls down a few places if, if that's the criteria that we're applying. So with the major reveals, with, especially with innocence, with the major reveal, it's like, what? Did we need that sort of existential conversation? While we just stare at a marionette, like it was weird. <laughs> you know, especially when, when when Matoko comes into the picture, and then she, you know, has the big reveal. I, I was kind of like, well, it would have been nice if they would have just examined that. And I guess since we're doing spoilers, the big reveal in Innocence is that um, one of the company's um, Locus Solus, I think it's called, mm-hmm. is um, kidnapping. It has hired the yakuza young girls and duplicate their ghost and put them into the bodies of genoids or gynoids or whatever, which are like female sex robots, which is pretty disgusting. But fascinating to examine in this cyberpunk world. And they just went left with it. So I was, it, was, it, it is, I mean, I agree with you, Brian. It's pretty disappointing and it's a step down. Yeah, was... I'd like to, sorry, um, I, I'd like to look at this actually because I think that the way they represent uh, sexuality in this world is absolutely fascinating because like you said, they do have these kind of sex robots um, but at the same time, Motoko's character is actually presented as being a queer woman and at the same time, that's presented in the most male gazy way possible in the manga. 
So, I mean, Valerie, how do you feel about that representation of her? Um, the manga depiction is just sort of bad. It's really bad, <laughs> um, but it's also really shocking. Um, yes. With the way that they went about it, it was, you know, I'm, I'm, the panels, I'm thinking about the panels now, and I'm kind of getting the willies. But Those, um, the, the four pages. Yes, it was like four long pages, and it was like treated as a joke. It, it just was not, you know, like you said, it was very... It was done from the the male gaze, but I think they handled it a lot better in standalone complex where you don't necessarily see, you don't have to see, you know, you know, tits and ass to know if someone is, is, is queer. And the way that they sort of deal with it in standalone complex is a lot better. Um, they didn't have to be explicit about her being someone who may participate in and menage toise and likes women and likes men and likes to talk about her period. Like it's, it's, um, I just think that they went like a better sort of way with that, even though, you know, her outfits weren't always to be desirable. I think that the representation was done fairly well. Okay. Peter, how did you feel about the, the way that they represented Motoko there? Uh, well, God, the manga was really bizarre. I think, uh, well, yeah, I, I remember there was a really long aside where she was talking to this other girl, and I guess the girl was technically a nurse and she was in for maintenance, but it was kind of like they were, um, I, I don't know if they were supposed to be flirting or something, but uh, I remember uh, Shiro put a lot of, like, cliff notes or uh, just, like, little, <laughs> like, like stuff on the bottom, uh, or maybe it was the editor, uh, whoever, whoever translated it, I'm not sure, because Shiro does that a lot in the manga, but uh, he was... They were talking about how when there's no reproductive pressure, uh, people tend to search for similarity uh, when looking for sexual partners or something. And I guess the, the bottom basically just said this is sort of the reason why this is like an excuse for her to be a lesbian or something like that. It wasn't specifically stated like that, but that was essentially what it was saying, which I thought I it was – I mean, there's a lot of fan service in the manga, so I feel like that was just kind of uh, Shiro doing what he wanted with – uh, her character and the visuals. Um, although I do remember later on, uh, she's dating a guy who works for, I think it's section six or section seven. Um, and, uh, the, that little, it's just like the beginning of a story arc, but, uh, it, it shows them like in the same apartment and I get in the morning, I guess, so that it it implies that they had spent the night together. The reason that stands out to me is because later on they find out that, they were like manipulated into hunting each other down, and when they run into each other, they're both surprised. But she still throws a knife through his shoulder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then I, I felt like the anime kind of—I uh, don't think it implied that she, there was there was nothing between her and men. It just yeah had like I guess more um, implicative indications of her sexuality because uh, I think it was that one scene where she was called in and she had to. And she was in her apartment with another woman or something like that. So that was... There like were very... two women in the bed. Two. Oh, there were two? Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, it wasn't for full-color pages of uh, an orgy on a boat. So I, I can't say... I guess I got to say the representation is probably so more tasteful. Out. Yeah, but um, it's interesting the directions that they, they took it. I, I'd say the manga probably did it the worst because that was just... Yeah, it was basically porn, so... Brian, how about you? You know, I'm I'm thinking about those you know those four pages. They that... make an impact, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Well, I mean, I was thinking about them 
particularly because I think in the, the new edition that just came out over here in English, that those four pages are omitted, yep. which, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if that's a good thing or not, because, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, I mean, they're really kind of, you know, I mean, it's very, kind of, you know, very cheesecakey, very, you know, you know, not really necessary. But at the same time, I mean, there, without those, there is that kind of aspect of Kusanagi's, you know, personality and and her sexuality that's kind of obscured. That you know, if you were picking up, you know, that version of Ghost in the Shell, and somebody was reading that for the first time, you know, they might, you know, not necessarily, you know, pick up on, you know, certain aspects of of her character without that, you know, that. So. And I believe that because that's what Shiro wanted, that that is, you know, that was what he thought that their, you know, deluxe edition should be. That was his vision of what of, of what the manga should be like now. So, you know, and that's another question. So, I mean, you know, if something like that is being removed at the behest of the creator what exactly does that mean for the characters i do kind of like the nods you know to her relationships in in standalone complex yeah when she's in the apartment and you do see you know that there are you know that she's in there with with other women and you you do kind of get that aspect of her you know what what she does when she is off duty. You know, I mean, I think that that's something that you know, certainly could have been, you know, explored fairly interestingly, but you know, that they that they decided against uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, because I heard the reason the reason for the um, four panels <laughs> being just the four panels, the four pages of manga being just women, was that he didn't want to draw some guy's butt. <laughs> that was the reasoning behind it. I remember I hear um, something about that too. Or he he said he didn't like drawing guys' butts. That was yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, good decision on his part. Um, it's part of the the lore, isn't it? That her body is that of a sex bot, basically, isn't it? Um, do they? I don't know if they say that. Um, this is what I heard. Um, there's this amazing series. Um, about kind of the body of of women in Ghost in the Shell on I think it's womenwriteaboutcomics.com by Claire Napier. She's just written this whole series and it's absolutely fascinating. And at one point she mentions um, that it's an established part of the mythology that that Motoko's body is kind of a fairly common replicated body that's used for sex robots. Um, But that's a secondhand source, obviously. I haven't consumed a lot of Ghost in the Shell myself, so I was hoping you guys could correct me. I think it depends on which thing you're going for. I don't remember reading anything about that in the manga. I know oh, in really? this, in Innocence, they say that most... Well, that's for bots that don't typically have uh, human ghosts in them. Uh, they usually don't put in sexual organs, but in this case, they did since they were recreational, mm-hmm. quote-unquote. In, <laughs> in both, I think, in the manga, Arise and the first anime, I think they keep going over how all of like her software and her hardware and her even her memories... Um, are basically possessions of the government uh, because uh, n- normal robots can't do a lot of the things that she can do, uh, like like mm-hmm. rip a wall in half. Uh, so that's the, <laughs> she's basically got a military grade 
uh, cyber body. So I don't think I, it couldn't be a sex bot and a military cyber body. Hopefully not. <laughs> but and I, that was a big theme in the movie too. They basically said like it, if she ever quits Section Nine, and I think they mentioned this in the manga and the, the standalone complex as well, uh, they would be able to basically repossess her uh, body. Uh, take away all of the classified memories that she had um, regarding, you know, just all that, all of her work, and uh, take away a lot of the uh, parts of her cyber brain that allowed her to do, like, various kinds of e-hacking and external memory and that kind of thing. So I don't, uh, if it was mentioned with that, I don't know if that would could just be continued, considered a continuity error since, like, so much that she has is obviously military equipment. So okay. I, I don't yeah. see how she could also be a sex bot. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I can't think of a, a particular part of of anything in the in the franchise that that specifically talks about her body as being kind of a, a sex bot body. I mean, I I could just be completely misremembering and you know, overlooking something. The only thing that I can think of that might be kind of close to that is in the 1995 movie where it's that kind of long sequence where it's wordless and you know mm-hmm. we see her you know kind of riding down the canals and she's looking at at you know at various things and various people and there is we see her looking at a woman who is seated in a building kind of across the way that looks very much like her and so maybe we get this idea that's you know at least uh you know from um from a very kind of superficial point of view that her body might look like you know other kind of mass market bodies that are out there but i mean of course she would have you know like peter was saying i mean definitely you know military upgrades and things like that that you wouldn't have on your on your average cyborg body that would be out that uh you know you could purchase regularly but yeah i don't know about the you know about that aspect of her body um there's nothing specific that i can remember watching or reading uh there is absolutely a chance that i that I misread or I've misremembered and that I'm misrepresenting Claire <laughs> yeah. Napier horribly at the moment. So Claire, I'm sorry if you're listening. I mean, um, it, it's not hard to like make that just bit like her sort of uh, figure and body design, like especially, I mean, all well, his art style just kind of draws these impossible female anatomies. But later on, you kind of have to question the utility of some of that. Like assuming it was a military body, uh, well, it might see, not have that's... been... That's kind of what I wanted to ask, because, I mean, from a feminist perspective, that is, you know, really interesting. The idea that this, her body and her body and her memories, her body and her mind are completely owned by the government. But at the same time, the body they've selected for her is one that, like you say, you question the utility. Like her breasts, for example, they do stick out a lot. They've got really obvious nipples on them. Like that's not something that you need for military purposes. It's also not something you need for reproductive purposes because she can't reproduce. They mention this. Mm -hmm. So what purpose does it serve? And the fact that her body is kind of constructed presumably by men, because I can't think of another reason why it would be there other than male gaze. Um, But it's also owned by 
by the government. I just think that's really fascinating. I don't remember where tons of different things about Ghost in the Shell, but um, I don't, I guess she can't reproduce, but I know she has her period. Uh, I think she, she, she mentioned that in the movie, but that might have been a joke. I think that was a joke. That may have been a joke. I was going to say that could have been a joke as well. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with just general, you know, anime in general, just drawing women like that. I mean, look at the outfit that she wears throughout the first season of Standalone Complex. Yes. With like a bomber jacket off a building, (laughs) and she's like, you know, doing parkour and this leotard. It is ridiculous. But, um, I, I think what I do remember actually reading somewhere was that um, because Matoko was one of the first people to get a cybernetic body, mm-hmm. that they thought she, her body and her ghost was more prepared for the upgrades because she had that even other people don't have. She's considered like a dangerous weapon. But if I remember correctly, they didn't take anything from her. When you look at solid state society, she seems the same. Solid state society is kind of hard. I remember watching it a long time ago because I thought it was a separate movie until I found out it was a part of the Alone Complex series. So mm-hmm. a little bit about that that I have a hard time remembering. But from what I understand, she's still very dangerous with the way they left it off. So... But then you go to Arise, and her body is not as mature. So she's given a much younger body in Arise, isn't she? But I think Arise is a prequel. Th- that's what yes. people keep saying. It I is. don't know how... It is? Okay, well yeah. then, she's just a younger Matoko. Yeah, they talk about how they keep on... Yeah, they, like, uh, they talk... I think they revamp her past from Second Gig a little bit, uh, saying it was an accident, but it's some sort of, like... No, no, it's like a chemical attack. So uh, they saved her brain. And as she grew up, they gave her larger and larger prosthetic bodies to kind of simulate growing um, until finally. And like right now, I guess she's a teenager or something. Yeah. Like preteen even. But even then, <laughs> uh, the, the, the first story arc is uh, like, I think they want her for Section 9, but she currently is essentially government property uh, because yeah. uh, like her body is so expensive and she's gone through several of them that they basically said she has to work for them because they like she owes the government like millions and millions of dollars at this point just from all the prosthetics yeah interesting interesting i didn't think about that before because when i think i'm sorry i'm jumping ahead but when i think no no please the the movie has a lot of arise details from the costumes to how they take her brain and sort of make this body when you say Um, the movie we're talking about the remake which I'm talking about the live action one that's coming yep, to Hollywood. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of details are used from Arise, which I thought were interesting. And since you mentioned that, Peter, now it makes total sense. Um, because Arise is kind of like a blur because I found it really boring. But that's <laughs> <me>. <laughs> No, no, no. It was me too. Me too. <laughs> okay. Brian, have you seen Arise? I have seen Arise. It's probably, you know, you know, talking about you know, favorites in the Ghost in the Shell franchise. I mean, yeah. as a whole, Arise would probably probably be my least favorite. Oh, really? Just, just in general, and for and for what, you know, the, the character of Kusanagi, just because, 
yeah, it's it's not the it's it's not the kusanagi that's that that we see in really kind of other you know any of the other you know in in standalone complex in the movies in the manga. She is she's not. I mean, and, and this could just be, you know, because it's, you know, kind of supposed to take place earlier, supposed to be kind of, you know, a, a prequel, you know, but she is, she does seem, you know, even though she's, she, we see her commanding Section 9, you know, she is, she makes a lot more mistakes. She doesn't, um, you know, she's a lot more immature, which, you know, again, kind of makes sense, but, you know, I, I just don't, I don't like that, that, Representation in in Arise, as much as some of the others, um, and, and also talking about you know kind of our, our you know, maybe our, our least favorite aspects of Ghost in the Shell. Um, I think uh, Valerie, you brought up you know her her outfit in in the first season of Standalone Complex, which is probably my number one reason for for kind of being skeptical of that series and I didn't actually watch Standalone Complex until you know a number of years after it was out just because you know I saw those character designs and I it you know really kind of made me take a step back and you know made me think that this was not something that I would necessarily want to watch just kind of based on that ridiculous completely <laughs> completely inappropriate <laughs> outfit that they yeah. had her in you know when you know, everybody else that you see in the entire series seems to be, you know, dressed reasonably. And then, yeah, she's got that that leotard and, you know, uh, leather jacket kind of ensemble that she sports throughout that you know, seems rather impractical. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, right. it's, it's bad. <laughs> I, do th- I do think uh, the part about uh, the major being very kind of like unflappable. She's kind of like kind of like a, a Batman, I guess. Uh, is kind of I- iconic to her character. Like the reason everyone trusts her so much is because she's she always has like a level head and is prepared and is very capable. And uh, I-, I personally enjoy Rise. Uh, I-, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite or anything, but I uh, I do think that it kind of it presents a very different major. Especially like uh, one thing that stood out to me is in like the first story arc, somebody hacks her. Uh, into her cyber brain and like uh, they're like it's so that she can't see certain things or uh, no she they actually rewrite part of her memory uh, and I don't think that happens in any other uh, ghost in the shell pretty much ever she never gets hacked by anyone else it's always her hacking into someone else which is actually a pretty uh, strong statement for that series because it's so prevalent like she typically does it to win fights a lot like as I said she made that guy hit himself but there's also uh, hacking is sort of portrayed as this very dangerous thing that can happen to people because, uh, especially like in the first movie, you have that garbage truck guy who was sort of tricked into uh, remote hacking uh, this secretary for this very important uh, government, uh, I don't know, chief statesman, something like that. Um, And they did it by making him think that he was trying to hack into his estranged wife's brain because he thought that she was cheating on him, but it turned out that he was single, he didn't have a wife or a kid, and they had just like created this scenario in his brain where he would be doing all this and uh, like to, to motivate him to do this that just didn't exist and they said uh, this this is like what they did to your memory and unfortunately there's no technology where we can uh, restore your normal memories so like in a, in a world where that is such a present danger I think that's kind of uh, 
uh, it says a lot about the major that she until arise was basically immune to that she like she was so good at what she did that no one could touch her in that way right i mean outside of the first two movies she seems pretty invincible like you said like batman you know without the prep time she can just leap buildings and just (laughs) sort of do you know and just sort of do things and i think arise shows her as you know someone who's a little bit more inexperienced and more vulnerable which i think is great it just the execution just wasn't the look of Matoko and I like that young youthful look and I noticed that when a lot of people reference Ghost in the Shell they reference the major from standalone complex but forget about how she looks in Arise and some of the others uh, I just think Arise just the execution was just ugh. I guess that is kind of dipping into a very current theme in anime where we have moe art styles which are drawing women to appear like younger and younger uh, and like a lot of series that focuses on teenage, high school age girls uh, yeah. that this new rendition has everybody essentially looking the same but the major looks like a preteen to teenage girl but Bato looks the same uh, I can't remember what the bearded guy's name is Talk looks the same. Ishikawa? Yeah, yeah, Ishikawa so the major is this I mean, she, I definitely, I think that as as far as major outfits go, I think the, the red bike leathers is pretty good, but the fact that they, like, reduced her <laughs> age and it didn't appear to happen to anybody else is kind of, it says something. It does. And I think, when I think of Modoko, um, I do think of her in the same bracket as kind of action heroines like Ripley from the Alien series. Oh, yeah. Or, like, um, Imperator Furiosa from Mad Max. Mm-hmm. I think that she's in that bracket. And to see her kind of reduced without anyone else being kind of treated similarly to make it truly like a prequel, it does it does seem odd. Um, we need to wrap up soon, but I just want to touch very briefly on the Hollywood remake coming up. Now, this has been very controversial, um, I think rightly so. <laughs> but what I wanted to ask you all was how could Hollywood have adapted Ghost in the Shell in a way that would it would retain its mainstream appeal while also being sensitive to the cultural context and the impact of the source material. As far as you know, kind of positive things that the adaptation that uh, an adaptation could have done. Um, you know, I don't think that, as we see in, in in standalone complex, you know, we don't necessarily have to definitely adapt all the you know philosophical concepts of the of Oshii's films and I mean and yeah I say of Oshii's films I mean he he's basing it on things that are in Shiro's manga as well so I mean it's not like you know Oshii you know necessarily you know imbued all this philosophy you know I mean this was stuff that was that Shiro was talking about as as well in his original um but it was just kind of you know adapted but and without having, you know, of course, without having seen it, I don't know how much of that aspect is, you know, being retained. Um, so, you know, I hope that some of it is some, you know, kind of deeper philosophical concepts that, you know, I'm not expecting a whole lot from, from uh, a Hollywood film in this regard. But, you know, at least kind of allusions to or, you know, or gestures at some of these greater concepts you know, of, of mind and body. And certainly just, you know, the aesthetics of, 
of, of everything is, you know, I think that, you know, in some ways, Shear's original and, you know, Oshie's films take the, they take all these different, as, you know, kind of cyberpunky aspects and, you know, and they, they put it in, you know, uh, in a Japanese or, or East Asian context very well. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of this has to, you know, going back to the original source material and kind of extrapolating from it so that, you know, we, we get things that aren't, you know, necessarily, you know, just a Hollywood vision of what such a thing would look like, you know, of, you know, this is, you know, we, we, we see this and we think it's cool and we're kind of putting our own spin on it, you know, maybe going back to some of the original designs and incorporating those a little bit more. And, you know, and of course, you know, we haven't even, you know, haven't even really talked about, you know, the casting issue. But I mean, I think definitely, you know, casting, you know, a, a, an Asian American female in there would certainly have been, you know, what they needed to do in order to respect the source material in order to, I mean, you'll... You, yeah, you it get, would have been a bare minimum, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I would have thought so. I would have thought so. Um, but, you know, without having seen the film yet, I'm not necessarily sure about how it's going to, you know, how it's going to deal with all these issues. Up until very recently, I'd been saying that, you know, I was, I was cautiously optimistic about, about the film. Um, I don't know if, I don't think I would say that anymore. I just, I, I hope it's better than I think it's going to be. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much enthusiasm. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a little low on this, uh, well, just in general. Well, what do you think? What do you think about the? Well, how could Hollywood have remade it in a way that was culturally sensitive? Do you think? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I, I guess from what I know of the movie so far, I think pretty much all the things I want or was hoping for have already pretty much. It, I have evidence to indicate that that's not happening. Um, <laughs> what would you have wanted? So what would you have wanted? I, well, first of all, yes, there's the casting issue. Not not just for Kusanagi herself, but for all of Section 9. I think they only had one Japanese actor where pretty much all of them are Japanese. Yeah, so, Takeshi Kitano's in it, isn't he? Yeah, I, I feel like if they wanted to do this, they should have uh, just maybe made something without using the Ghost in the Shell franchise. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. called Lucy. That's what I thought. Yeah, oh God. Mm-hmm. That was such a bad movie too. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, well, I don't know why Morgan Freeman signed up for that one. But uh, in addition to that, I would hope that they would have a lot of uh, either the societal or uh, societal, societal commentary or kind of like the, the existential or human essentialism discussion within the because I mean, because those are like the two pillars of Ghost in the Shell almost. And it sounds like it's just going to be a revenge flick. Um, so I don't... I, I, I have definitely seen a lot of Western cinema. I am a fan of Western cinema, cinema as well. Uh, that uh, is able to explore these kinds of concepts, but not typically in mainstream action. Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen a mainstream action film that had any kind of... It, just that at all. So since <laughs> since it seems like they're going for a like very strong action story and from what i understand it's also like have well i'll I'll touch on that in a second uh i 
I think it's mostly just going to be like Matrix action that we're going to get. And then, oh yes, yeah, the Major's character as well. One thing that she always, she's rather impersonal, I guess. She's very, she's like a consummate professional. Uh, so uh, pretty much any conflict that she gets into with anyone else it, over, like, this is all of Ghost in the Shell. It, she never gets emotional about her job. Uh, she's very objective. Uh, and I just don't see that from any of the promotional material so far. So I don't feel like even in regards to her psychology, the character is going to be in any way similar. So in, I can't really point at anything besides a cyber body which has been done in a lot of different uh, cyberpunk and science fiction stories that would indicate that this is even the same character. So, uh, yeah, pretty much everything I wanted, I, I don't think I'm going to get. Although I will watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Probably just so that I can I can, I can can justifiably criticize it, I think, is the yeah, reason exactly. that I'm going to watch it. Yes. Exactly. There's yeah. a chance I may end up seeing it, but specifically to be able to talk about it from so a feminist perspective. Speak badly about it. <laughs> Well, if any of you are, if any of you are in New York, let me know because I could help you see it for free. But so see, that's preferable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, okay. did you want me to say? Oh, God. I right do. In. I want you to. I want you to come down on one side yeah. of the fence. Um, okay, that's with everything went, you got. I went to a, actually of the film mm-hmm. about two weeks ago, and they showed us like twenty minutes of footage. And they really gave away way too much about the story. Because I was like, wait, what? Like everybody was, you know, they bought their popcorn. People spent forty, fifty dollars on popcorn and they got 15 minutes. But I thought it was pretty funny. Anyway, um, I digress. <laughs> but, um, you know, just like what Peter said, it's, it, it reminded me of RoboCop. Like, it, yeah. it, you know, it doesn't seem anything like anything outside of your average cyberpunkish revenge story. Um, um, in this film, I know a female does create uh, her body, um, but there are some things that are problematic. Um, and the whole existentialism—I don't know if we're going to get that. But one of the one of the film models is like, like they created me, but they don't control me. I'm coming for them. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what she says, and it's kind of like <laughs> that's not. Yeah. what I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like, it's unfortunate because I wish they would have went the Matrix route where they took ideas and elements from source material and made their own thing mm-hmm. as opposed to calling it Ghost in the Shell when it's nothing like anything. You know, from the character design to everything is just sort of, everything is just not in play. It's not in place. Um, and they have elements of, you know, different things. They have elements from Silent State Society, from Innocence, from Arise, from Standalone Complex. They have Kuze, who's from uh, Second Gig. Like, they just threw, like, a bunch of elements together. And I guess they're, you know, they have this, they created this sort of story. Um, I'm thinking they've created something that's, like, a one-off because maybe they've already known that. You know, when you look at the history of Hollywood adaptation, how many have been successful? Like zero. So I just don't think this one is going to be any different. What I would have liked to have seen was something a little more, 
existential and something with a little bit more representation. Um, the guy, the actor Chen Han, who plays Togusa, is from Singapore. And then you have Aramaki, I uh, beat Takashi. Um, mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. So you have this white woman like controlling a whole group of people of color. Oh no, the guy that plays um, Bato. Yeah, uh, not Bato. The uh, other, uh, I forgot the one on the team, the sharpshooter with the eye. Oh, uh, Saito. Saito. I think he's a Japanese guy too. Okay, good. But the guy that plays Ishikawa is black. Like it was just weird. It's weird. It's really weird. You brought up a good point, though. Like, Ghost of the Shell has, had, like, had, had a huge influence on Western cinema, actually. Like, they, I, there's shot-for-shot shot things that you can pull uh, from the 1995 movie that have made its way into Western cinema. Uh, the Matrix was heavily influenced by it. They, like, it's, it's obviously, we've seen a lot of Ghost of the Shell in Western cinema already. Mm-hmm. It's just as the first time somebody's slapping the label on it and trying to say it's the major in this movie. And in this, I would say it's probably one of the ones that I would say is least similar so far. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like if it if it felt like it was going to be more like uh, Blade Runner esque, I felt like it'd be more appropriate. But it, you just don't get that vibe off the movie. Well, because Ghost in the Shell is inspired by Blade Runner, but it took that those elements <laughs> and did something else with it mm-hmm. instead of making an anime version of Blade Runner. Yeah. So I, I, I just find it very, uh, there's a lot of, I've written a lot about this. And if you guys are yeah. interested, I can send along the links. I've written about why these adaptations fail. To include it in the show notes. I've written about a lot of this kind of thing. Because there's a lot of factors mm-hmm. that go into it. And a lot of it is casting and poor marketing and just in general. They set these remakes up for failure. So. Oh, you had a really good article that had a lot of the... Uh different kind of rendition like hollywood renditions of kusanagi right yeah that was me mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> i didn't so. know anybody read read that oh yeah i, def- I was definitely i, I checked your work out <laughs> i knew you'd be you on the podcast yeah yeah <laughs> and that's the thing is i do i do genuinely believe that you can remake anything in a way that's kind of sensitive and appropriate and a real kind of homage to the original material and I, I think they completely failed at that because that wasn't a priority in the slightest. But I do believe that it is possible. So it's interesting kind of hearing your thoughts about what you wish they'd do. I think that's going to have to wrap it up for today, though. Thank you so much, guys, for joining me. Um, just to say that you can find more of our podcast, more of our work at www.animefeminist.com. You can find us on Twitter at Anime Feminist. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash And we do have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash animefeminist. And it's been our priority to pay all of the team from day one. And thanks to the generosity of our patrons, we actually reached $800 before we were two and a half months old. And that's enough to pay for four articles a week. Now, we'd love to be able to make podcasts weekly as well. But we only want to do that once we can pay our editor $15 an hour for their time. Um, because when you're doing something fortnightly it's kind of volunteer work when you're doing it weekly it is a job and we want to pay people for jobs that they do so if you can spare a dollar a month to help us to do this um, as soon as we hit nine hundred dollars we will make podcasts weekly we have so many ideas we have so many guests that we want to invite we really have more than enough capability to come up with weekly podcasts but we don't want to do that until we can pay people fairly for their work so if you can spare us a dollar a month it really does add up 
please go to patreon.com slash anime feminist and help us to continue our work so thank you so much to valerie brian and peter um please get involved in the comments let us know what you think